I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and sitting in today is my co-host, Kim Garner. We'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is Paul Olinger. He attended Rhodes College and borrowed $100,000 to get an MBA. But during a business school talent show, he performed stand-up for the first time and got bit by the comedy bug. And even though comedy was his true passion, he took the safer path and found a steady job to help pay back his loans. Paul worked in digital media for companies like Launch.com, Yahoo, and Facebook, where he rose to be vice president of West Coast Sales. But soon he realized that comedy was his true passion, and he was never going to be truly fulfilled doing anything other than giving stand-up his full attention. Today, Paul travels around North America performing at festivals and in comedy clubs, sharing the stage with top comics like Dave Attell, Norm MacDonald, Bill Burr, Mark Maron, and many more. He's the host of his recently launched podcast, Crazy Money, interviewing entrepreneurs, celebrities, authors, and artists with a humorous perspective on money, wealth, and career. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Paul Olinger. Thank you for coming. So let's start at the beginning of your life. We know um, that you were from the South. Are you born in the South? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Born on Peachtree Street. No kidding. Piedmont Hospital. I was in Atlanta last year for the first and only time we were on a bike trip that ended in Atlanta. I hope it wasn't in the summertime. It was uh, not the right time of year to be there. It was in August. And I was a little bit annoyed at myself. Who's in charge of the itinerary for that one? It was totally my fault. And I thought, oh, it can't be that hot. But it was bad. It was the end of August. But (laughs) oh, my God. But the one thing we did in Atlanta, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is we ate ourselves from one end of Atlanta to the other because you have amazing restaurants in Atlanta. Per capita as good a restaurants as any city in the country. Oh my God. I mean, and per capita, uh, the, the hardest part about the great restaurants in Atlanta is the traffic to get there. Same as here in LA. But I mean, there's phenomenal eating in Atlanta. Is that, is there a culinary school there or what, what drives I, I that? I just think there's a, you know, the South has great food all over, but in Atlanta, you know, it's a, it's a magnet city that pulls a lot of artists from all over the South because there's a lot of commerce there too. And uh, there's just a tradition of good eating. Unfortunately, very little of it is healthy. Yeah, very a lot of fried, heavy saucing, but yep. oh my God, so good. It's very good. <laughs> you yeah. could just eat for one. And I was also really interested in Atlanta, and you probably know more about this than I do, the squares, how all the cities, these little areas are built around these open squares where people come to meet. And there's like one little square after another. There, there's a couple of neighborhoods that are like that. Unfortunately, Atlanta, like so many cities... Charlotte, Dallas, other had, had very poor city planning and it was victim of sprawl. And so the suburbs are mm. very car heavy and you don't have as much pedestrian uh, intermingling as you would on, you know, in, in some of the older cities that were planned a little bit better. But there's beautiful neighborhoods. Oh, in, yeah. Inman Park is a gorgeous area downtown that we, we particularly enjoy. And the architecture is great there. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. We had a really, I loved being there. We were there for three days. I had a wonderful time. We started in Charleston. Oh, that's a And worked city. our way down to Atlanta and mm-hmm. just re- literally ate our way from Charleston down to Atlanta. Mosquitoes? Fortunately, we were biking. Oh my God, the mosquitoes. This, this I'm was the, mos- like the mosquitoes and sweat. I hope you had plenty of gold bond and 
and uh, water to stay hydrated. Uh, you know, this is a little bit personal and gross, but we were you know, girls have you know private areas that they really don't want bugs in. Sure, <laughs> spraying myself like this because you get moist when you're biking. Oh yes. my god, it was such a horrible experience with the mic with the bugs. But that's so funny that you I, do that in August. It was yeah. Trust me, it wasn't my best idea. But they convinced me oh, it won't be that bad. Yeah, well, here we were. But anyway, did you grow up in Atlanta? I grew up in uh, Dunwoody, which is a suburb of Atlanta, right outside the perimeter. I lived there until I went to college and moved away and didn't come back until eight years ago. Only child? You have oh, siblings? Oh, no, I'm one of six. One of six. Where do yeah. you fall? Fifth, youngest boy. And yes, there's a connection between the size of the family, my order in the family, and my desire to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> If I had had, if I had fewer siblings, I might be able to hold down a real job. (laughs) And yes, I've told them that. (laughs) Was Um, it more? Was it more family order, or was it more part of who you were growing up? Like, were you a funny kid at school? You know, I think I was. uh, I was an outspoken kid. I don't know that any any of my classmates would describe me as funny. I think you know the family dinner table. We had. I I just spoke to my oldest brother last night. We're all very involved in uh, taking care of my 92 year old father. So we've got a pretty tight knit family, even though we're not in close proximity to each other. But I, the dinner table at our family was was uh, a large version of the Cleaver dinner table, <laughs> a, a large unruly version of it. Certainly wasn't as uh, well appointed as the Cleaver dinner table. But it was six kids. My dad was home at five thirty every night, pretty much. You know, as we got older, we had sports practices and all that kind of stuff. And and my dad would ask us questions about politics or sports or whatever at the dinner table. It was there was a, there was competition for attention at the dinner table. And certainly as one of the younger ones, I, I worked hard to, <laughs> to earn my airtime. You time. had to be a little more boisterous just to get the airtime. Yeah, yeah. Where was your mom during all of this? My mom was always there. She, she, uh, was, uh, she, didn't, she wasn't just a stay-at-home mom, but she was very much at home. She worked probably 30 hours a week as an adult education instructor at our, at our Catholic church. Wow. She ran uh, a group, the Separated and Divorced Group, at our church. And that was kind of a big deal. She was kind of a progressive in the sense that, you know, in the seventies and early eighties, divorced people inside the Catholic church were hardly celebrated and they were excluded from sacraments and things like that. So my mom helped a lot of people through a lot of hard times in their lives. And, you know, the phone would ring during dinner a lot of the time and it would be somebody who needed to talk. And my mom would always take the call. That's lovely. Yeah. She was a great lady. You just mentioned your dad as your mom passed. My mom passed away five years ago. Yeah. She had uh, a Parkinson's related syndrome called PSP, and it was brutal to watch her deteriorate from this charming, hilarious woman into um, a pretty feeble. How old long did lady. it last for? Her decline was probably five or six years. So she lived a long, good, healthy life and then pretty good, yeah. Sort of fell off a cliff. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Your humor tough. or that sensibility about you from your mom? My dad has this old Southern charm with no bravado. My mother had this kind of wicked, very quick mind. And I'm probably somewhere in the middle, I think. Never thought about it. I mean, she was very loving and, and they were both very faithful and black and white thinking when it came to right and wrong. But my mom had sort of this sardonic edge to her that, that would come out once in a while. Well, she would be so proud of all of you. The six of you are all friends. Mm-hmm. You're having a fantastic resurgence in your career, mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. I mean, think about that, right? If you can only have that with your children when they look down, when they look back. Well, I think that's that's the return on investment. You know, they put in the time. Yeah, they sacrificed. They were there. If my dad had been 
concerned about making up her management, he wouldn't have been around as much. Right. If my mom was less caring about other people and her own kids, she could have found other things to distract herself with. I couldn't agree with you more. My husband and I set it up that I went to work at 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. and came home when the kids came home from school. Wow. So from their perspective, their mom didn't really have a job. You know, <laughs> she'd only like, been working East yeah. Coast hours. <laughs> yeah. But like there, I was there, you know, and right. then of course I was the only working mother and everybody mm-hmm. else, nobody volunteered for baseball, soccer, you know, basketball, Boy Scouts, nobody except for me. Right. So I was always the one. Meanwhile, I'm the one that grew up and has four children that live two miles from me and come for dinner, you know, three times a week. Oh, that's great. Love each other like nobody's business. And, yeah. you know, they're Very obsessed with baseball. Yet. So there you go. I don't take anything for granted and, and you're not in control of any, well, you're not in control of what ends up happening to your kids, you know, a lot of it, but you can do your very best and try to control for the things that are. Yeah, I agree. That, are, that you can affect. How many kids do you have? We have two children, a nine-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. I lo- I'm telling you what you said of your son with your dad, we need a chef. <laughs> oh, so this, the story <laughs> That's so funny. Is, uh, is, is a true one. Here in, it must have happened in LA. No, it happened in Atlanta. No kidding. Yeah. And we, and so my kids were, my, when we moved to Atlanta, my son was 17 or 19 months old and my daughter was two months old. And so they weren't really fully formed social beings yet. But over time, you know, we moved back after working at Facebook, moved back to Atlanta. We bought this beautiful home and a gorgeous old neighborhood. And, and he came home from another family who happens to have significant means. And he Bunch said, of <laughs> he said, uh, when are we going to hire a chef <laughs> like they have? And I was like, what? <laughs> I thought we were doing pretty good, kid. Do you know, you know how much this whole food stuff costs? We got everything you need. No powdered milk in the cupboard. <laughs> yeah, they, have no per- <laughs> they have no perspective. They've never been hungry, right? It's, I mean, well, it's, you know, I didn't know how great we had it either. Yeah. I think we all see the world through the lens that we come up with and kids just That's don't have right. the filter. Uh, this is a scary story too. That and, and my son's a great kid and I love him to death. It's just that he says things that or he, he was saying things a lot more. We were skiing in Beaver Creek and we went over to one of my very good friend's ski houses and it's a condo off the mountain that is their second home they live in boulder and he's got and my son said to his kid the first time he'd ever met him you guys have a small house (laughs) they're very honest and i was like oh my god and my 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 very good friend told me this later that he had said that and i was like oh man what and it's you? not, it's, 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 it's our fault. It's, we have put them and it, it, it was, it was good that I found out about it because it gave us the opportunity to talk to him about it and say, Hey, by the way, that's their second house. First of all. Right. And second of all, you don't say it. Right. Yeah. And as somebody <laughs> who's been going kids? to Vail for 40 years, What's that? somebody who's been going to Vail for 40 years, that second house in Beaver Creek probably cost more than his house in Denver did. Well, so. it was an Eagle, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> or okay, fine. You're right. You're fine. Yeah. So your son definitely, oh, dad was at Facebook. And now he's like, oh, dad's into comedy. Like, what do your kids think about all of this? I was saying to somebody yesterday, I don't think they have a fully, they're not at the age yet that they have a fully formed opinion about what other people's parents do. There are some more high profile people that he's friends who, whose kids he's friends with that, you know, that guy is a musician. That other person is a, is an industrialist or a, you know, very well-known entrepreneur. And so they, they think it's interesting that I do comedy. 
Do but, they know? Do they hear it? Because I, I know no, you do have swearing stuff. Because I was going to say, it's not is child he, friendly. No, I know, but I saw. It, but the, do you tell them the stories? Have and is there any it? embarrassment? Like, Dad, oh, really? Well, I'm not, some of my better bits include personal stuff yes. about them, so I'm, I'm putting off talking to them about it as long as possible. It's <laughs> um, so funny. My son's web surfing habits have made it to my to the stage. Yes, and so very uh, funny. Yeah, it, and and so I I'm I haven't at some point I'm going to have to have a conversation with him about. Hey, by the way, I'm I'm getting laughs at your expense. Yeah. But Let's, until you have a job, he and won't can pay mind. rent, you know. So. Let's get back. So you're you're before you're at home in Atlanta. You're going to school. So you go and you're going to get your MBA. Education important? Did that come from your family? What are your brothers and sisters doing? Oh yeah, I mean, well, my dad. Education was the number one thing. My 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 dad didn't make a ton of money, but they they put all six of their kids through twelve years of Catholic school, and then put us all through college for those of us that that kept pushing through and did so without getting with, with no loans or anything like that. Which, in retrospect, you know, especially unbelievable what's yeah. happening today, that's just an incredible gift. Even if you know, if that's all you do for your kid, you've given them this incredible head start. And then he did the, he, he, he gave us this other gift was after, after graduation, he gave me a statement for the pocket change I had borrowed it from him and said, um, please commence payment immediately and said, good luck to you. And those first few years out of school, as broke as I was, were probably the most impactful years of my life in, in terms of focusing my my determination to be financially independent. Yeah. I was like, screw this. I get Being that. broke, having a car with no air conditioning in Memphis, Tennessee is no way to live. No. You think Charleston and Atlanta are hot, you know, Memphis. Did yeah. you have an idea what you wanted to go? Like, what was your dream at that point? I remember doing, I was in plays in high school and I remember being on stage and feeling like this is the greatest thing ever. This is a drug. I didn't call it a drug, but that's what, how I felt about it. But I also remember thinking, but this is not something that, that normal people do. This is not a real job. This is, I, I can't. You're having too much fun. I can't study drama. <laughs> right. Well, that's part, that's the Catholic thing. If you're having fun, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> it's right? the Jewish thing it's, too. Yes, we're, we're aligned. Related on this. My great grandmother was Jewish. So I got. We're not allowed to have fun. We have to suffer. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're having fun, you're not, you're doing something wrong. So, but it was also just the practicality of it, which is I want to get a college degree so I can get a good job so I can drive a Buick LeSabre and live in a cul-de-sac. You know, that was sort of the way I, I, I thought about what my career would look like. And I got that business degree undergrad. I had the experience of being broke and I was like, well, I can either start a new career or I can go back to business school and really take some time to try to take things to the next level. That was the idea of going back to business school. So comedy, short of playing, um, performing in plays, mm -hmm. that sort of artistic bug, like I want to be on stage. Did it just sort of go a little bit to the wayside because that was, wasn't the pragmatic thing to do? buried because it yeah. wasn't pragmatic. Yeah. And I, I didn't know I was funny until I went to college. And at college, I had... People at the refectories, which we, we called it at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, people would laugh at my jokes. Where in high school, they just say, "You're, you're, we don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot." You're, <laughs> and so, and so in college, 
I made people laugh and then I, but I never thought about it. And I, and I was a big comedy fan. I had old Steve Martin records and re, I mean, they really affected me in terms of resonating with me, but it never occurred to me that you could ever even put yourself on stage, let alone make a living at it. So when I went back to business school, I expected, you know, what I thought I would get out of it was, oh, I'm going to end up being a banker or a consultant or whatever. One of those traditional, probably a marketer. But then I told jokes at a talent show my first semester and I killed and I was just making fun of my classmates like they were sitting around the dinner table at my house and it was really natural feeling and the response was overwhelming to me. It was like, this is the greatest feeling I've right. ever had and this is, this feels real. But I was like, well, so what do I do with this? Right. And was it a commentary on life? Like, what was your style? Like what? I was just busting balls. I mean, I was just mm. looking at my friends and calling them finding clever ways to call them dumb or smelly right. or unfashionable or whatever. And it was all done with love. I mean, I don't make fun of people I don't like. I ignore people I don't like. But, uh, you know, that dinner table aspect of trying to say something as cleverly and as differently and as possible and playfully yeah. as possible about the people around you was that that's what that was about. And Dartmouth, where I went to school, the Tuck School is a very tight knit community. You're stuck in the woods with four feet of snow around you, you better I've been get along to that and campus. have a good That's time. That's no kidding. It's it's spectacular. It's I, gorgeous. It's spectacular, and I had the greatest time there. And I was just we just had a weekend with guys that I've been friends with for twenty five years now, and we're as tight as ever. And so, so there's a lot of love in that community, a lot of love in that room. And that's where, that's where I got bit by the the seed, the seed of it started there. And then it kind of was dormant for a while. And then you, I had $80,000 in 1997 dollars in tuition debt when I got out of business school. And so the practicality of chasing the comedy dream was non-existent. So I just put it on hold and went into the internet business. And I was trying to get into TV or, or film because I thought, oh, somebody will, somebody will discover me in a marketing meeting mm-hmm. and they'll think I'm <laughs> funny and they'll put me in front of the camera. I mean, that's what I was trying to do. But then I didn't get any of those jobs. And so I thought, well, this internet thing seems like it might turn into something someday. And with that's about as much vision as I had. But I stumbled into the perfect industry in 1997. How old are you? I'm 50. So when you were there... No, really, I'm 50. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. Thank you. <laughs> You don't look 50. Oh, you thank don't you look for that 50. spontaneous reaction to my age. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, so the whole thing about this, when, when I read your story and started to think about the fact that you became the VP of sales at Facebook, to be successful in that job, I know this well because I'm a salesperson, you mm-hmm. know, first and foremost, to get you to be my client, I have to convince you that I'm good at what I do. So sure. you know, there's always some sales involved. But when you started that job, did you use humor and your charming personality to have you make inroads in that? Because you didn't start as the VP of Facebook. You had to work your way up to that job. Well, just to clarify, I was the VP of the West Coast. So that's not the head of the whole sales operation. But you operation. were there before they went public. So you had the I was opportunity. There, I was there pretty early. I was employee about number 250. Mm-hmm. And I, I so I'd worked in sales at a company called Launch.com, which was a music website. I'd worked in sales at Yahoo, calling on major consumer packaged goods and technology. I, I've, call, I've called on just about every industry. And then I went to Facebook as a sales, because I did comedy for two years in LA, then I kind of was like, I'm not ready to commit 20 years to this thing yet. And I had just gotten engaged. So I was looking for a job and I took a job as a salesperson for Facebook in the LA office. I got promoted a couple of times. I think what I brought to the job 
as a salesperson, not just at Facebook, but in all those positions prior, is that I love the product. I really did think that music on the internet in 1998 was a fascinating thing. And I wanted to share what we were up to with the people, with marketers. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, I thought my ignorant enthusiasm probably opened more doors than the merits of what we were selling because what we were selling at the time was a tiny audience that could barely connect to the internet because mm-hmm. we didn't have, there was no Wi-Fi. There's no smartphones. The only way you could listen to music was if you were plugged into an ethernet cable at your office that had some kind of T1 line. Or you were stealing it off the internet and stealing yeah. other people's intellectual property. Well, that was even later though. So, yeah, so that bit, was later. Cause so, I was, I was in the music business. That was later. Yeah, so you were very early or something. Yes. So I mean, I and I was very proud to be a part of that company. I love the guys. Still love the guys that I worked with back then, and the women too. Uh, You know, it was a great, great organization, and was very fortunate after the dot com bubble exploded to to end up at Yahoo, which was as good a brand as there was in the internet at the time. Who was running Yahoo when you were there? Jerry Yang and David Philo were still Mm. around. This, I think, and I'm going to Tim Kugel had left. And Terry Semmel took over shortly after they bought launch.com and under his leadership, the stock, you know, the growth of the company, we, and under the leadership of Greg Coleman and Wenda Millard, Wenda Harris Millard, that we demonstrated that it was possible to use the internet to brand and to sell products. Now, Google is really what the game changer was in the internet in terms of making marketers believe what was what was possible on the internet, but Yahoo did a lot to take. Yahoo brand was knowledge. unbelievable. It was a great time to be a part it was of that. Great company. time to be mm. there. And Terry Selma, who I knew before, I, I know Terry Selma, knew Terry Selma, mm-hmm. was a great executive. I had one meeting with him and Craig Barrett, the CEO of Intel, and and he was such a perfect gentleman and made me feel included and made me feel appreciated. And I think that if you're a leader, I mean, that's, that's what you do to your, to, to your troops. Yeah, was, was he sad. at Warner Music before that? Didn't Warner he run? Brothers, the Warner, Warner Brothers. Studio. Yeah. He was co-CEO, yeah. I believe, of, of Warner he got, Brothers. You know, watching him de- deteriorate was such a sad, sad story. He ended up at the motion picture home out in Calabasas. Mm. What an executive. When I was in the room with him on multiple occasions. I was always amazed by his warmth and his, mm-hmm. you know, inclusiveness that he demonstrated and his mind was, he was so far ahead of what was going on at that time. But you're right about what you're saying. I mean, that whole thing with Yahoo and Google and those searches and all, it's a very, uh, you know, 25 years ago, this didn't exist. And now it's changed everybody's life. And I'm so late to, to, I really literally don't know how to, I don't have a Facebook account. I don't know anything about social posting. And yet you've created your own podcast. I created my own podcast and my partners tell me on a regular (laughs) basis, you need to post. I'm like, I don't know how to do that, but I have people. You can outsource it. You have people. That's (laughs) right. We we surround. Her in that yeah, side I have of people. Things. Yeah, that's. The, the but it's a very, uh, you know, I figured, well, why do I really need that? And then one of my girlfriends said to me one day, she said, "Well, I know what your children are doing, and you don't." <laughs> well, that makes sense. I get that. But anyway, it's a very, um, it's changed the way of the world. Absolutely. In a ways that you know, some some good, some bad. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have a dear friend who's now running health for uh, Google, and he told me that they do. Which is shocking to me. It's probably not shocking to you that there are one billion searches a day about healthcare hmm. in some form. You know, how do you get rid of a bruise? I got right. a headache. I got this. I got one What's billion this growing on my arm. Right. It's the most amazing thing. I mean, you think about that number, and it's absolutely and we take stunning. it for granted. Now it's just common. It's like, oh, yeah, we got Google. But back then, none of this existed. That's right. So let's keep going. So you're at Yahoo. Now you get, how do you get from there to 
Facebook. Facebook. Well, I took a I took a detour and did comedy for two years in LA. Did here you make in LA. any money doing that? Doing comedy. I mean, I paid my rent, but I had saved up money. Did you go to the comedy store? I did. I I hosted for two years at the Improvs in Orange County in Mm. Brea and Irvine. And I opened for just amazing comics and I learned so much. And I was terrible when I first started and I got less terrible after over two years. Still not great, but less terrible. How old were you at that time? I was 36 Mm, then. Wow. But then I got engaged to my wife and I decided that I wasn't going to give the 20 year full commitment and live off of her salary, you know, while I tried to make it as a comic. So I went back to work and knowing what my market value was, it made sense to go back to work. I had no idea what I was stepping into when I went back to work at Facebook. No idea. Still private. It was it private was, company. It was 250 employees. There were probably 25 million monthly unique users. Today there's 2 billion plus something like that. And every month I would look at and say like, oh, we're this much closer to Yahoo or this much closer to MySpace. I literally said when my wife asked me if if she thought Facebook was going to be anything, I said someday this company could be as big as MySpace. That's that's how <laughs> that's how much insight I had. That's so funny. To, it's, a, it's a real quote. I like get, you know, it gets laughs too. But I mean, that's, I didn't know how big this idea was. And t- to be fair, I think Mark Zuckerberg had very big, ambitions and saw something clearly to walk away from the ability to make like $400 million or something when he was 23 years old, when many companies offered to buy it, he had big plans. He had big dreams for was what Sean it was going to Was Sean around then? I'm sorry, who? Was Sean around then? Sean Parker? Uh, Sean had left before I joined. If you, if you were watching the social network, I think I, I would have started after the credits. <laughs> somewhere <laughs> somewhere after they think the, employee the good people of, of of New York City and Palo Alto or whatever at the end of the being employee two fifties, that's a valuable position it to be. It was a valuable in. position yeah. and I I reaped very very yeah. meaningful financial rewards for it. I wish I would have held on to the stock. Long. I, I still hold a lot of stock, but I mean, you know, when you leave your job and stop working, you lose flexibility. Even if you have a lot of money, you lose flexibility. But if I'd have stuck around, you can ha- you can be more patient because you have income and you have benefits right. and you're still vesting more stock. So you don't have to say, all right, the world is ending when the stock goes from 42 to 17 in a matter of, you know, a month because or that's two. The, right. That money is what you're depending because on. Because that's what you're depending yeah. on. And I, it wasn't like we were living, we weren't flying private or doing anything like that, but we had set ourselves up, even if it's only your attitude or your sort of expectations that we're going to have whatever it is at 42. And then it plops down to 17. It, it scares you. Well, you it scared also, me. It scared mm, me to death. You were working there too, so you couldn't hedge your stock, right? Well, I know I left. I'd left before the IPO. So you were able to hedge your stock. Well, yes, but recall that. So when you leave the company, you have to exercise all your options within right, 90 days. Right, but you could days. exercise and hold, pay your share. And I your... did. And we and we we did have some hedging available that we right. that we exercised on. But in retrospect, it was the collar was laughably small. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, it was so tough. we got to lock in a, you know, when it's 17, you got to lock in a $21 price or, you know. What year did they go public? I can't remember now. 2012. I left in October, 2011 and it was summer of summer, or late spring of 2012. I would also remind you, I mean, we're, we're not having a conversation about finance, but I would also remind you mm-hmm. that it was only about 18 months after the crisis. That's right. So there mm-hmm. was a lot of people that were still jumpy. Yep. I remember this intimately well. I mean, we lived through this. We had one of the biggest businesses in the city, and it was a horrible time. Yes. And so I would say to you that to make your peace of mind what it was, 
that making sales of those shares was not a bad decision. And you kept some of it. And oh, by the way, here's another idea. You can buy some back if you want to. You may pay up for it a little bit, but you can still buy some back. I mean, these businesses are going to migrate into things that we can't even imagine. Yes. The story that they put out yesterday Incredible. about the coins mm-hmm. is an unbelievable thing. And the fact that they've already secured partners with the people that they've secured partners with, and this is clearly the way of the future. Mm-hmm. There's not a shadow of a doubt about it. Him and and I think Jeff Bezos is the same kind of an intellect and the same kind of a guy that understands what people want. I mean, Amazon is much more impactful in my life than anything else is. And it's, you know, for everything. I mean, television, I buy stuff from it. Oh, um, you know, it's, there's not, there's no doubt that, you know, Whole Foods, I mean, he's a, he's a genius also. There's That's a bunch of those guys, you know, there's him, there's uh, Elon Musk, obviously Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, these people are geniuses. No question about and it. And we're living in a world that's so exciting to watch the way the world is changing. The two guys from Google, I mean, these, these are people that think in the ways that we don't even understand and can see the future. They know. do. They do. And, I, and that's what was so impressed me about having a front row seat at Facebook. One of the main things I missed after I left Facebook were the, were the weekly all hands calls where Zuck would be in front of the company talking about the future and the product roadmap and why these things were going to be important. And then when they opened up Facebook Connect to allow you to use your Facebook credentials to log into all these different sites around the web. And I was like, wait a minute, you're basically building the plumbing under the entire internet. It was like mind blowing. And when you leave, you go, you, you don't, I didn't get that kind of insight mm-hmm. anymore. And it was sort of, it's like, wow, you don't, you're not growing as fast when right. you're not a part of that kind of company. I want to stay on your comedy because I don't want to let you leave here without Let's hearing this. Yeah. <laughs> so now you quit your job, you I sell do. some shares, you got some dough, you go yes. back to Atlanta, you buy a house, yep. you're married, mm-hmm. you start to have kids, you have two children. Right. One who you get to make fun of. <laughs> do you make Oh, I make fun of my daughter too. You do? <laughs> yeah. No, she's so did, and not as much. And not your much. wife. Since you had enough money in the bank and yes. you said to your wife, I want to pursue a career doing this, was her response, of course, you should live the life you want? Or was she, are you fucking out of your mind? Well, or a combo? <laughs> So in fairness, I disclosed to my wife on our first date that I would be quitting at Yahoo at the time in a few months to go to pursue comedy full time. So she was warned from day one. You <laughs> on know, your first date, on you told day her one, that? I told her that. She, my wife has been 100% supportive. After I left Facebook, I had the experience. I didn't go right back into comedy. I, it took me a while to admit to myself that I really that's what I really wanted to do. I was afraid. I was scared I was going to fail because I kind of failed at comedy the first time. And when it came back, I didn't know how to restart because I was back in Atlanta, not in LA where I knew a couple of people anyway in the comedy business. But that's kind of a blessing in disguise because you really want to be good before you move to LA or New York. You really want to have honed some of your craft yeah, before you're seen market. by industry. And if they see too early, which is what happened to me. I, I was an open micer that came, all of a sudden got this opportunity to open for all these great people to improv whose managers and agents come out and they're like, who's this idiot op- who's hosting here? So going back to Atlanta actually gave me, I, I didn't know how to start. After a couple of years, I finally admitted that I, that this is what I truly wanted to do. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I just said, I'm going to start writing every day and I'm going to just push forward. Started going to open mics and met some people and met some club owners and you keep showing up and people eventually going to go, Oh, I guess this guy's not going away. So (laughs) 
you know, we might as well make friends with him. And, and now I'm part of the comedy community in Atlanta and it's been great. Do you write your own material? I do. Do you buy my jokes kids, from anybody? I, just, I sit there and watch my kids. I've had writers work in the past, but the experience is always like, okay, this is funny, but it's not me. Yeah. You're very, um, you know, down to earth in that. Like you can relate to the audience. We talked a little bit about mm-hmm. that before, but in what you're talking about is very relatable experiences to your life and I, making them really funny. Try to. Yeah. And even the experience of having a lot of money, I'm trying to, I'm trying to at least examine it to say like kind of how I came from where I came from and even though, and try to make the experience relatable. And I haven't figured out how to do it completely yet. It's still sometimes weird to kind of talk about it in front of certain crowds. And I kind thing, of feel like I got to warm them up first. You do. But you have something I noticed right away. You have great timing. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, like Very you know. comfortable in front of an audience. The dinner table. The timing is really important. Yeah. The only other person I know besides you now that we're friends is Howie, who is unbelievably funny. Yes. 100% of the time. Is he? Oh, my God. Yeah, 100% of the time. You cannot be around him and not be laughing like you're peeing your pants because he's so funny. That's interesting. About everything. Everything. I've I've never met him, but a lot of comics, and there's no need to mention names, but a lot of comics, they're hilarious on stage, and they get off stage, and they're the sad clown. And you're like, wow. Yeah. What darkness are you channeling? No, up how on he's that funny stage? about everything. Plus, oh, he's got this know. whole thing where you can't touch him. Yes. Which is the funniest thing. Yeah. You know, you just, it's, it's he's so funny. I knew about, I knew about his, but I didn't know about Roseanne Bars until I opened for her one time. And no, st- does she have that she, too? She, 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 well, she didn't shake my hand. So <laughs> I, I think she's just, she just doesn't shake hands. And so, and, the, and I wasn't told beforehand. So I sat there with my hand sticking out for, 15 seconds until I was like, oh, okay, this is not going to, and I'm not, I, it was just kind of a weird experience. She's got the right to not want to shake hands if she doesn't want to, but she, and then That's she said funny. something like, don't suck. And then I went out and had a pretty, yeah, that's pretty encouraging. good set. Yeah. That's so, so you funny. said you were um, working at an improv class. So improv, thinking mm-hmm. on your feet fast and funny mm-hmm. is a real skill as opposed to having stuff scripted and going out and delivering it well. Are you good at improv? I think I would like to be much better at improv. I did take some improv classes. I was working as the host at the improv comedy clubs in Orange County. I've never really done improv in front of an audience. I've done it in classes with other students. It's fun to do, but my passion is stand-up. You know, the greatest improvers in the world, and you get watch the guys in SNL and go to see it at the Groundlings or Second City or UCB or whatever, and watching great improv is moving. Watching Incredible. bad improv makes me want to just right. gouge my eyes out. One of my worst experiences ever, I decide I'm going to go learn and see if I can do improv. I did a five-day intensive here. Oh, my gosh. I wanted to run out of the room the whole time. Why? Like I am most proud of the fact that I hung in there for five days. What was it? Um, vulnerability yes. and not being able to think on my feet. As yeah. soon as I'd sit down, I'd go, oh, I could have said this and it would have been so funny. That's right. So my brain's just not wired like that. There's a certain amount of rigidity, whether that's just who I am or whether (laughs) it's the way I was raised or my religion that I don't speak as uh, improvisationally or as freely that I have to sit there and think about what I want to say instead of just saying it. Well, everything of yours that I found on the internet that I watch, none of it's dirty. It depends. Dirty is sort of in the eye of the beholder. And I don't, I don't, one of the reasons I don't do dirty, I've got plenty of dirty jokes, but it's hard to differentiate yourself with dirty. When you spend a lot of time in comedy clubs, you hear a lot of the same subjects coming up and you can't develop your own brand if you're talking about what everybody else is talking about, especially if it's your genitalia. I was a little girl. My father took me to see Jackie Mason. Oh, yeah? 
I still can remember being there. Where, I can where was still, it? Here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. at the Saban Theater. It's got to be, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago. And he was unbelievably funny. I wasn't a little girl. I was a young one, but it was I, I walked out of there. I was laughing so hard I was crying. That's he was awesome. hysterical. Have you ever seen him? I don't I, know if he's I saw he's him, Jackie alive? Mason? Yeah. I saw him in Detroit probably 20 years ago. And it was pretty incredible to watch him do his thing. Oh, my God. I don't know. I think he's still alive, right? I don't know. I don't know either. But it was hysterical. But the the ability to stand up on stage cold and try to get an audience that's sitting with their arms crossed, like, yeah, go ahead and make me laugh. You know, yeah. it's really pretty what I imagine it's like for you. And to walk out of that side to being in front, do you have anxiety doing that? Are you good? Sometimes. It's a, you know, the, the bigger the show or the newer the venue for me, the more I think about what I'm about to do. The irony is, you know, I heard your interview with William H. Macy recently and he talked about like, <laughs> basically he's like, if you can say, if you can act like you don't give a fuck, you're going to be, you're going to, you got to try to not give a fuck and then act like you don't give a fuck. And if you can pull that off, you'll be a good actor. And it's, it's, it's about not thinking it's about being there and being present. And that's something you learn after. That's why there's this whole, he, and he mentioned the outliers thing. And I think a lot about the, the 10,000 hours rule, 10 years to, yeah. to learn how Bill Burr, one of the best comedians in the world says, Oh, he's so funny. You become a comedian because your friends tell you how funny you are at, you know, sitting around telling jokes at the bar. And then it takes you 10 years to learn how to be that guy on stage. And it's the truth because Jackie Mason, by the time you've seen him, you saw him, he'd been doing it for 30 something right. years. He's seen every situation. He's had a heckler come up with with anything. He's had bored people. He's had people yawn. He's had people there. I had to, I got to go on stage one time and there were paramedics in the front row giving CPR to this woman. And the club owner was like, go ahead and start the show. And I'm like, there, there's, <laughs> she's dying, dying in the front row. How, how you want me to start? He's like, I don't care about you. He's like, you know, he's like, go start. This is your job. And I was like, oh. uh, so, so how do you keep it? Because you've got your bits. Yep. How do you keep it fresh up there when you say present? Is it in just in how you're uh, relating to the, the energy from the audience or like, how do you keep the same joke to a different audience every night? I'm still learning how to do that. The more you can go up, the, the more you're going to be able to just. It, it just becomes more natural when something happens in the room. If somebody spills a drink in the front row, you should acknowledge it. It's about learning which things to acknowledge and which things not to acknowledge. If there's somebody yapping in the second row, I mean, it depends on where it is in the show. If it's the beginning of the show, you need to say, Hey, late, you know, Hey, Hey, sir, or lady, you know, like let's, let's all, you know, eyes Band up together. here and let's, you know, kind of, I want to have a good time tonight. Do you want to have a good time tonight? Cause I can't, these other people around and you got to do it in a way. My, my thing, my tendency is to try to shut them down. And if I shut them down, I shut the rest of the audience down. Cause I'm a big, tall, white authoritarian looking guy with a crew cut balding, whatever I have. But you're so cute. Well, thank you. And you don't look 50. It, it can, oh, thank you again for the spontaneous uh, compliment. It's about learning how to do all these different things that just, that just oh, some different manifestation comes the mic stops working, the lights go on, the lights go off. There's just a million things that can happen. And it's about knowing which one of those things to acknowledge and which one of those things to let go. So experience in sort of the rules for success, basic rules, and then putting your own take and then your own personality and everything into your your bit. Yeah. And I think so. And just being honest about, you know, I, I think my jokes are more scripted than a, scripted in the sense that they're kind of written out to closer to the word than a lot of people's are. I don't just get up there and improv and see what happens. And so I think what I try to do, and it, this is helpful for writing also, is just to let your 
brain relax a little bit and say what's on your mind. And that's why you see a lot of comics recording every set they do, because you might by accident say something actually inspired and and really real in that moment. And you don't want to forget about it. So how many shows have you done, you think? I'd say I'd done about a thousand. It's a good number. Wow, Do you have an agent? I don't have an agent. Do you get paid? You get paid, right? I get paid righteous bucks and mini tater tots. <laughs> <laughs> I am on tater tots. So, we were just talking about this upstairs, Kim and I. And, um, you know, it's... It's one of these things where the if you're looking at the compensation curve, it's very, very flat until right. you get to the 99th percentile, and then it gets extremely yeah. steep. And, and then you get to have to have, you know uh, what's the name of that show? How he has the million dollar it's an, um, deal or no deal? Then you get to be deal or no deal. What are the make it or break it's in comedy these days? Is it still late night TV? Is it because there's lots of comedy on the on the on cable? I think like late night late night TV is more of a credential than it is a than it is a career maker or breaker, and because. When it comes to at least making money, I mean, it's, it's, it's important to do it. And believe me, I'm dying to do it. And I'm, I'm working hard to get the right tape to the right people at the right time. I think I'm ready for it from an experience standpoint, but what it, what it does, I think is an indication to the, the industry that you're there, that you're ready, that you have the skill. The, the other question is, do you have the product? Do you have the product that's going to move people to want to buy a ticket and come see you live? Because clubs and theaters don't care who buys the ticket and they don't care what you do when you're right. on stage. Mm-hmm, they right. care that you can sell tickets and that is the name of the game. And so what makes people want to come see you? Well, do they know you? Do they know you from television? Do they know you? F- I mean, from like your own show or from you're on the daily show, you're a correspondent for the daily show or something like that. Do you have a large YouTube presence? You know, Bo Burnham, who is a genius started making music videos in his bedroom when he was 15 or 16 years old. And he had a giant YouTube following long before he was doing live gigs. He's got the goods. And so there's a lot of different ways to connect today. And so the things that give you more exposure are also kind of things that make it harder for that exposure to have a real impact because there's just so much choice out there right now. David Spade lives right across the street from me. Does he really? I've been actually been in a fight with David Spade since we moved in because he won't right. cut his trees. It's like a whole Damn, story. Damn, she can't get you to David Spade. Can't get him to cut his trees. But um, I run a charity called Teen Cancer America, which I do with mm-hmm. Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. Oh, cool. And uh, it's a whole other conversation. But David agreed to do an opening for one. We do a big concert every year where we get Pink and Jewel and Eddie Vedder and Dave Grohl and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and Eddie The Who and Van Morrison. So he showed up to do, in between Eddie Vedder and The Who, he showed up to do comedy. Mm-hmm. And Judd Apatow and Howie were my MCs. Oh, my God. And so you would have thought it would a layup, right? Like, you know, <laughs> this is a guy who's super funny. Nobody listened. I was so unhappy. I was. I literally was having anxiety. Were they going to the bathroom during his- They did, and they walked yeah. away, and I'm listening yeah. to him try to make people pay attention and mm, to try to laugh, yeah. and he's arguably a really well-known comic, and he's- Oh, for sure he is. And he's really funny, he's and Judd Apatow funny. and Howie are so funny, and the, we couldn't get anybody to pay attention, and I was thinking to myself, li- I was literally like- heartbroken, right? Because we're having this big event and nobody's there and he's trying and I'm feeling like, oh my God, I wish I could make this better for him right now. And he got off stage. I said, I'm really sorry. You know, it's like, I feel terrible. He says, are you kidding? This is what goes on in the comedy world. You know, sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. But for you to be standing up there and people leave the room, it's just awful. Sometimes you're the uh, beneficiary of timing in a 
show or and lack sometimes, of beneficiary. Well, right. Time. So sometimes you're the person who that whatever you're the third act or the you're you, everybody's listening, everybody's paying attention. You have a killer set. Then you walk off stage, and then as you're leaving, you see everybody get up to go to the bathroom, and the next person has to come up and deal with you know everybody walking out. And, and they don't know who the next person is. And sometimes you're the person that precedes the bathroom break. And sometimes you're the person that right. follows the bathroom <laughs> right. break. And that's just one of the million variables that you have to go through. Right. And sometimes you the, still need to be brave. Yes. Well, but sometimes yeah. it's uh, the longer you do it, the more you become, you develop non-attachment to outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm dropping the- some stoic, you know, brilliance on you, but like, you just can't, you <laughs> can't take it personally. Brilliance. You just... You have to. Well, be you a- can't if you're doing what you do for a living. I mean, you're putting yourself out there in such an exposed way and hoping that people laugh, which is totally. You know, and if they're rude or crappy and they start yelling from the audience, I mean, there's people are so mean. Yeah, I, I found I haven't found people there. Sometimes people are drunk and rude, but it's their night out, and it's my job to try to connect with them or make them laugh. That's what I think. Well, what bothers me when I go to see a comic, somebody that I may be friends with, they invited me to their show, or one of the guys that I. I know that some of the people that I mentioned and I go to see them and they're up there doing their show and people are talking to each other. Sure. On their I'm phones. like, what the fuck are you doing? Of course. Mm-hmm. This guy's up here pulling his heart out and make trying to make you laugh and you're talking to your girlfriend. What are you doing? Yeah. Like I really want to go to the audience and just say, stop it. You know, pay why are you here? You're here to let him make you laugh and have a good time. You well, never know. Somebody's checking to see if the babysitter is texted or whatever. And it's I mean, you just gotta you got to roll with it. And if, and if it's distracting, maybe somehow you it's your job to change the energy in the room. And I'm not saying I, I know how to do it perfectly. I, it's part of the learning process. Who? By the way, David Spade's memoir is one of the funniest books I've read. Oh in the my past God. Five he's years. so funny. I like him very much. And I'm a big fan, but I'd be a bigger fan. If, if he, he cut his cut goddamn trees. trees. Right. Yeah. <laughs> who are your, um, who do you admire in comedy and oh. would that would look up to in like, Oh, I like how they're Let's doing see. it. Bill Burr is one of my favorites. Uh, Gary Goldman is as good a joke writer as anybody alive right now. Patton Oswalt's a genius. Oh my God, um, is he funny. Maria Bamford is is amazing. Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock. I mean, there's so one of the things that's intimidating, the more exposure you get and the more you go from working locally to working bigger markets is that there's just so many good people out there. There's so many. As one of the talent bookers for a major club said, he said some very nice things to me about my act and, my, and how I was developing. And he goes, guess what? Being funny isn't enough. You got to yeah. figure out how to find your own market, yeah. how to find your own audience. And so, just, and there's just a lot yeah. of really great comics. Out. There's a lot of crap out there too, by the way. But there is a lot of crap. There's plenty of, there's so I just many saw people. Kevin Hart and I'm, wouldn't think I was a fan. I actually thought his special that he just did was great. He's, he's amazing. Do you play at the comedy store? Uh, I have not. No. This is a business question, but if you want to go and do the comedy mm-hmm. store, do you have to get booked there or do you just show up and hope they give you a spot? There's, and I'm not sure exactly how it works at the comedy store, but there's different open mic nights. There's bucket nights where you show up and there's 300 names in a, in a bucket and they might pull out 10. I'm wow. as a, as a 50 year old, yes, really 50 father of two. I've got to budget my time in a way that I'm not going to go five nights to try to get up for five minutes. And fr- I'm going to find the place where I can get guaranteed at least five minutes and be seen by the club booker because I need to make sure that I'm investing my time wisely. But what size audience? What's your line of where you'll... Well, I mean, doesn't matter. It two, doesn't. Two people to 
uh, you know, how, however there, many hundred. Is there a club in Atlanta that is a great feeding ground to continue to work your comedy? Atlanta's got a great comedy scene, That's believe great. it or not. And, uh, there's a guy named Sean Patton who's a great comic who is on the cusp of being one of the better known comics in the country, and he's brilliant. And he was saying that his recommendation to young comics is go to Atlanta or go to Denver. Right. Don't don't go to mm-hmm. don't go to LA or New York yet. Go to one of these cities that's got right. a really well developed, very well networked comedy scene and get better and then then move up to New York or LA. But Atlanta's got, you know, you can do comedy any night of the week at three or four different places. The Laughing Skull Lounge is as good a club as there is anywhere in the country. 80 seats and it's the crowds, they sell the thing out all the time. They get great, great audiences and it's 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 a killer club. Is it like music where you play you know, every, you can't really go back after a month or three months to come back to get that audience. Like how often can you do comedy in Atlanta for you? Well, I'm trying, I mean, I'm doing my best. I'm going to New York more and more because I've found a couple of clubs that will book me up there. And, and so I want to go where people will book me and I can get booked at the, at laughing skull all the time, but I don't want to, you know, there's repeat customers there. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the person they see every single time. No, you need to have a bigger audience because otherwise you'll never have a bigger audience if you do that. So I'll do maybe eight shows a month at the laughing skull. And you should do charity shows. I should do charity shows. You should. Yes. I'm going to hire you for one of my charity shows, wait. except we don't pay. That's okay. <laughs> you don't need the money. That's You're okay. rich. <laughs> that's not true. And I don't, that's, that's the wrong way your to think about it. Your son told me you were rich. Your, your son told me you no, were getting him a chef. my son told you that my neighbors were rich, and they are. I missed and that part have, of the story. They have income. That's the difference. I have nest egg. They have income. They have W-2s and benefits. I, I buy my health care on healthcare.gov. I'm on the bronze plan. So when I have you do my next show, I'm going to let you open so people will listen. Oh, good. And not have you do in the middle of a change yeah, because that's super annoying. let David Spade annoying. do it. He's... Yeah. So fun. I felt so bad. I have to tell you that one of the funniest moments of all time was when Howie Mandel and Judd Apatow and my friend John Paul DeGioia, he donated a train. A train? A train. He had. He owned Patron, Patron. Tequila. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous train that goes around the country that's a Patron train. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic thing. It seats, I think it sleeps eight people. He it's donated an, a train? Yeah, to auction off for the auction. Oh, you mean like a like a car on the train Yeah, it goes, for a you trip. Donate, okay. Right, exactly. Now, well, now you're being specific. I'm using <laughs> well, I didn't know. We like literally. What do you do? He's we an come, NBA business we guy. We come home from some charity <laughs> auctions the next morning. Go like, what did we buy? <laughs> <laughs> so like, Howie like, and Judd did. I have them on tape. I'll send it to you. It's the two of them auction off this train, and they ended up buying it together. <laughs> and they were going to go on a trip together. Oh, and Howie doesn't touch anybody. You know? So yes. this whole thing about Howie and Judd and sleeping in the train. Oh, my God. Uh, it's pricelessly funny. That's amazing. Completely off the cuff. Yeah. The two of them were just, it was just priceless. And they're, I mean, Howie, like I said to you before, he's funny all the time. Like you're around him no matter what he's doing, he's yeah. making you laugh. You're, you can't stop laughing. Judd is not as, as um, he's super funny. But he's not like Howie. Howie's on 100% of the time. Yes. Judd's more a director and a writer, a comedy, than as a stand-up. Or did he do, I don't know oh, enough Oh, he does stand-up now. He goes Judd, around Judd the country. Judd was on, I, I think, like, The Young Comedians on HBO in 1993, hmm. something like that. You know, I mean, he goes way back. And I've heard him talk about this a lot. And one of the reasons he kind of moved away from stand-up specifically was he said, you know, I'm sitting there watching Adam Sandler follow me. And he goes, I realize that I'm good but he's great. Mm. You know, like Sandler is just, he said, I think he said in reference to some of the pop bands 
of the lit or mid eighties, he said, I'm watching you too. And I realized that I'm the call, which is like this, you know, band that had yeah. like, a, he does a, a lot of stuff at Largo here, which is a little club. Do you know yes, Largo? Know there Largo? He does sure. those Judd Apatow and friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's out. He's been out on a tour doing comedy for a while. He's very funny. I saw him in uh, Montreal funny. two years ago when he filmed his Netflix special. It was great. Yeah. He's very funny. Wayne Fetterman opened. You know who else is hilarious night. Crazy funny, and I never really gave him credit for being funny. And then I saw him live with Jerry Seinfeld. He's, He's so master. great. He's a master. He's unbelievable. I mean, I saw him on the Seinfeld show. My husband and I never agreed because I thought it was mean. And he said I didn't understand it, you know, which clearly I didn't because I was the only person in America that didn't think it was funny. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was funny, but I thought it was mean-spirited. But that was just because Larry wrote it. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, he went on to do the other thing. But so... He's so funny. When I saw him do his show and he makes fun of his wife, it's so priceless. People that think, you know, there's a lot of hip comics that, you know, want to, they, they want to out hip each other. And they're like, oh, Seinfeld sucks. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. Yeah. You're out of your mind. They don't understand how skilled and dedicated he is to the craft of mm. comedy. You're kind of the upscale version of the TV show Crashing. You don't need to be crashing, but you're kind of the upscale version of that guy. I'm staying at the Courtyard by Marriott tonight, (laughs) just so you know, on points. That's my crashing. Let's talk about your podcast a little bit called Crazy Money. Yes. So tell us a little bit about what it's about. Well, so when I left Facebook and had the experience of having the opportunity to do anything I wanted, I found myself lonely and adrift. It's great for a few months when you, when you, leave your job and you get back in shape and you read some of the books on your nightstand and you go and visit some friends, go to the beach, whatever, start to work out again, lose a few pounds. And then one day I took my kids to school and dropped them off and came home, turned on my computer and there was nothing there. Nobody was asking my opinion. Nobody was asking my permission. Nobody was telling me I needed to get something done. And I was like, huh, what now? And so I had, I I realized that I had kind of isolated myself amidst my own affluence And I didn't want to go back to work necessarily, but it was something of an existential crisis. And so I became very interested in how our relationship to money leads us toward or away from good or bad decisions and overall happiness in our lives. And I just started reading and I started writing and I'm 50,000 words into my next book. In the meantime, I was like, well, all these thoughts I have, I've got one perspective, but everybody's got their own story as it relates to money whether they won the lottery or had all their money stolen by a Madoff type person or can't get their bills together at age of 50. This week's episode was with a friend of mine who was a Vietnam, a refugee from Vietnam. Her father smuggled her out of Da Nang in the middle of the night in a fishing net when she was five years old. She spent two years in a refugee camp and then And fast forward today, she's a successful entrepreneur, mother of four, and lives in a gorgeous, you might say, mansion at the top of a hill in San Diego with her friend, my buddy, Brian. And so I just want to talk about, well, how did that experience as a manual laborer when you got to the United States affect your perspective on what financial security means today? And and everybody's got a point of view that's different. I learned something in every conversation I have. So all this research you hear, oh, anything over $50,000, $50,000 studies show that people are really not much happier inside Mm -hmm. at sort of that. How do you, with all your reading and interest in your podcast... What do you think about that? Well, I think there's truth behind that, that there are declining marginal returns past a certain amount of affluence because, or, or just solvency really, because everything above that isn't 
relieving pain. It's just sort of adding a little spice. So when I had that experience of driving a car around Memphis, Tennessee with no air conditioning, and I replaced it with a Saturn SL2, 1994 Saturn SL2. I don't want to brag, but I had a Saturn SL2. <laughs> and that purchase- Did it have a bobblehead in the back of the car? <laughs> that was, it's a moped. It's a four-wheeled moped. But it, that purchase was one of the most glorious purchases of my life. It was like, I, I, it, it made me so happy. I was so proud to drive that Saturn SL2. And I've bought a lot of nicer cars in the interim and they're nice, but it's not the same kind right. of palpable relief that you get when you're going right. from barely being able to pay your bills to solvency. Because it's a real game changer It's in a your real life. game changer. The yeah. wealthiest I've ever felt is the day I paid off my student loans from business school. That's when I felt empowered financially. And when I started making money when I was 32, 33, that's when I was like, oh, I'm my own person. I'm an independent human being. I don't rely on anybody. I don't dread opening my mailbox. I can answer the phone anytime it rings. I can tell Capital One to go fuck themselves. You know, like what's in my wallet? Cash is in my wallet. Right. That's, you know, like, yes, and that's that's a bit. Not a very good one, but it's a bit. I and, laughed. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's these funny. are the things that make yeah. a difference. And so, and people, but what we, we don't respect solvency and the million boring pieces that go into becoming your own financial person. What we, what we worship and fetishize about in the United States is this Kardashian type lifestyle that is completely inaccessible to 99.999 repeating percent of the population. And that's what people aspire to. And that's why they run up their credit card bills and they, and they, they actually pull themselves deeper into a hole. I don't have to you know, preach to the financial people. No, I people, see but, this in my daily life. I mean, and, it's just... And you can do that if you're making $30,000 a year or $5 million a year. Like, unless you have your savings in, or unless you have your spending and your income correlated in a positive way, you're not going to feel in charge of your own financial life. And that is part of your life. I'm finding more people like you all that want to talk about these kinds of things. But most of the information out there talking about money in the publishing world is about how to make money, how to save money, or how to invest money. Not about what we want for money. We and just had a two-hour conference call with our, our financial people last week because we're thinking about should we make an investment that, that uh, we're looking at second homes and you know we know all the research, but we've got to be really diligent about what we're committing to and both of us have to be on the same page You're about it. You're very smart to deal with it that way. And, and, and it's been, it hasn't, it's, 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 I know it's going to be good in the long run, but it's been stressful. Even, even when you have, and that's what people don't understand. That's one of the things people don't understand is that even when you have a lot of money, you can string yourself out financially and that will end up causing stress in your relationship and in your life. Money is a, is a, um, extremely interesting topic. I've had two guests relevant or several guests relevant, which you're talking about, but two stand out in particular, Jean Chatsky from the Today Show is the financial editor of the Today yep. Show. She, she's published a book called um, Women with Money, and it's an A to Z guide on all the different things you need to know. Um, and, and one I've of the motivations it. was because women are living longer and are going to ha- are going to be assuming more and more financial power in the world over the next 20 years. I mean, the numbers all point to, you know, women being, having, you know, their spending power is growing significantly year over year because they live longer. Another woman, Chanel Reynolds wrote a book called get your shit together. And it was the part memoir and part guide to living wills and estates because her husband got hit by a van when he was riding his bike and died after a, a week in intensive care. And she realized as she's sitting there looking at his, at his body in coma, that 
she didn't know the password to his phone. Right. That their will was written but not signed. And she goes on and on and all these things. It's, they all had the best of intentions, but they were never prepared right. to deal with it. And so one of the things is like, well, let's face reality. We're all going to die at some point. Yes, we are. Do you have your shit Except together? Except for me. I've just Except for you. You're gonna, well, <laughs> the just podcast does. is going to live forever. <laughs> that just doesn't work for me. So, so sometimes, you know, sometimes the, 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 the interviews and actually the interview and her book is very well written, actually very funny. And just because of the frankness of it. So sometimes the podcast, Crazy Money on iTunes, iHeartRadio and wherever you find Plug great, away. great uh, <laughs> podcast. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's kind of serious. Right. You know, it's kind of more, let's talk real about what's going on. With Do you life. enjoy keeping your, like, like one foot in a little bit more on the business side or discussions around that and in comedy or most of your time is in comedy now? Well, I, I mean, I'm not really doing any consulting or advising. When I first left Facebook, I kind of did consulting, advising and investing because that's what I thought I was supposed to do because that's what you do when you leave a Facebook or a Google, like you become an angel investor. And I learned pretty quickly that unless you're really committed to being an angel investor, you're gonna get your ass kicked at angel investing. And I didn't want to commit unless you're really willing to to write a check and then follow up that check with some elbow grease. Don't write the check. And I didn't want to do that. So in the past couple of years, I've said like, and, and, and by the way, every hour I spend consulting with some startup that I've invested in is an hour I'm not working on on the thing that I really want to do. Right. What I like having mm -hmm. the, the, the foot in both worlds talking about money and then doing comedy. I think conversations like I just enjoy these kinds of conversations. And I think that in the social world that we're in, we need more thoughtful conversation and less commenting and outragey, clickbaity headlines. Even with the half million podcasts that exist, these conversations matter to the people they that do. have them they do. and listen to them. We just need to all get along because we should help each other. We're all connected. We are all connected. Paul, having you here was a tremendous joy. Really, my, I really enjoyed talking to you. Honor to be here. Thank you for your interest and thanks for having me. Is there me. anything we want to say? Can we say your name? Say the podcast name one more time oh, sure. slowly. Crazy Money with Paul Ollinger. And Ollinger is O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. I also have a new comedy EP. That's like an album that was on a diet. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's available on iTunes, Spotify, <laughs> or Heart Radio. It's called <laughs> Alive on the Upper West Side. It means I didn't have enough material to do a full album. Is what it means. Or actually, I did. It just didn't. The recording didn't come out so great. Okay, you have to say uh, that again because you made me laugh. I didn't want you to. Keep the laughter in. Don't edit out the laughter. <laughs> he gave me the eyes. Uh, <laughs> That's um, so funny. For a guy of 50, an you're album funny. On a diet. The, album is <laughs> the EP album. It's called Alive on the Upper West Side. It was recorded at the West Side Comedy Club in New York City. Wow. Where, where I will be on June 27th, unless this comes out on June 28th or later, in which case I was at the West Side Comedy Club. I have one question for that yes. we always ask. So interesting. You're a business guy. You left to do comedy. What mm -hmm. advice would you give? Whether it's to college kids, is it like make the money where you can and then follow your passion? Or what's your advice? Making the money first is was advice that I got. And I was ready to throw it all in, you know, in 1999 and just go out all in comedy. Who knows what it would have happened. I'd be 20 years into a career. Maybe it would have gone great. Maybe I would have quit after five years. I don't know. But having the money first is a good place to be. If you yeah, I'm 50 and I'm an, basically a, a newbie in the comedy world. I mean, I've been, I've been, I've put six or seven, eight years in, depending upon how you define it, but it's real nice to be able to say that I, I can feed my family and pay my mortgage without, you know, and, and chase my dream without, without worrying about how I'm going to feed my kids. That said, 
before you quit your job and chase your dream, really do your due diligence and understand what you're committing to. Because you're not committing to going to be on TV. You're committing to grind it out for a decade. If you want to write a novel and you don't want to be by yourself every day, don't write a novel. If you want to publish a novel, you got to write one first. And writing one means sitting at your desk by yourself every day for five years. So good luck with that if you don't like to be by yourself. Good advice. Anything just short and sweet? What would you tell your younger 20 self? Um, maybe don't say everything that's on your mind. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't have to express hey, every that's what you're teaching your son. You <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's been it great. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Next time, you'll meet Laura Wilson, owner of Natural Pilates. Laura grew up in Romania, where she was an athlete, a gymnast, and a member of the national archery team, where she earned two national titles. While in college, she received a student work and travel program for the U.S. and arrived in America in 2002 with $100 in her pocket. Loving the lifestyle, she moved permanently to Los Angeles to attend college. Laura started as a massage therapist and went on to get certified in various other modalities, including Pilates, and opened her first studio in 2005. Fourteen years later, Laura's original studio, still in Beverly Hills, is five times its original size and she now owns four other studios, employing more than 30 people. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Laura Wilson and discover a true American dream success story on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you.